you know, I really do think that parenting favors the young because when you're older, you, you don't want to be getting up every three or four hours. So I think it's just hard, hard on you physically and mentally. But, um, you know, at the same time, it was exciting because, you know, I felt like I had so much more to offer. You know, I was more established in my career and, you know, I, I knew a lot more about life. Welcome to the Fatherhood Podcast. I'm your host, Jamar Hudson, and you're in the fatherhood. As a new member of the hood, my goal is to use this podcast as a platform to talk about my journey as a new father. Part therapeutic, part informative, part educational. My goal is to talk about everything, from adjusting to getting no sleep, to changing diapers, to just hoping I get everything right. This podcast will be a space to share with you the joys, challenges, and fears of being a first-time father. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Fatherhood Podcast. I'm your host, Jamar Hudson, and as always, welcome. I'm happy to have today's guest on the show. I was able to connect with him a few weeks ago online, and he graciously agreed to come on and share his story with me, and I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. So with that said, Jonathan Briggs, welcome to the Fatherhood Podcast, man. Thanks for having me, Jamar. It's good to be here. Absolutely, man. Again, um, like I said before, you have an outstanding story to, to share with our listeners. But before we dive into that, Jonathan, just, just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, a little bit about your career and your profession. Yeah, um, I'm Jonathan Briggs, fatherhood at 40. As I say, I'm a 40-something dad who loves statement socks um, along with my wingtip shoe. <laughs> I'm at that stage of life. I'm originally from Los Angeles, California. But I moved to the Chicago area back in 2004, and I've stayed put mainly because I met my wife, uh-huh. and who's a Chicago native. I call her my Michelle Obama because she, oh, wow. she's a lawyer who grew up on the south side of Chicago. In fact, in the same neighborhood that Michelle Obama grew up in. Uh, my background is actually in journalism, and I was a journalist for 11 years before going into public relations um, and now I actually do um, communications for one of our national labs. So I work um, for one of our research and development labs um, here in Illinois, um, Car Argonne National Lab. Outstanding, man. You, you kind of touched on my next question. You mentioned your wife. So tell us a little bit more about her uh, and your extended family or your daughter. Yeah. So I met my wife, believe it or not, through eHarmony. So we're one of those couples that got okay. matched up by technology. And she was actually the fourth date that I had in 2006. And I said, if this date does not go well, it's going to be a moratorium on dating. I'd had some really bad dating experiences, including a blind date that just was, I couldn't wait for the check to come fast enough to get out of yeah. here. But um, she's from Chicago. Uh, she used to be um, in HR. And she decided, you know, no one listens to the HR person, but they always seem to listen to the same advice if it comes from a lawyer. So she decided to go to law school and she's actually a tax attorney. So Hmm. people really listen to her now um, because she can help save you some money. Uh, But we um, had our daughter five years ago and my daughter's name is Emery. And uh, she's just really been one of the lights of our of our life. 
That that is outstanding, and that is actually ironic because our son's name is Emery. Oh, that's <laughs> so, funny. <laughs> so that, that's, that makes this conversation even more interesting, man. How, how do you spell your daughter's name? Um, e M A R I E. Okay, okay, that's it's very unique. Like Ours is E M O R Y. Exactly. Yeah, like the university. Yeah, yeah, awesome, man. So, so sticking with her, sticking with Emery, tell tell our listeners, uh, JB, what does being a father mean to you? Yeah, I was thinking about this um, when you asked me earlier. Really, it just means being solid, being a rock, being a pillar. And it's, you know, it's a wide ranging question because you don't really, I think you plan for parenthood. You know, my wife and I, we started our family when we were in our late 30s. And so I became a father right before my 40th birthday. Right. And so you plan for parenthood because you're, you know, planning the pregnancy and buying all the, the things you're going to need for the crib. But then once the baby is born, <laughs> I think that's when you really it really sinks in that you right. are a father. Yep. And I think it takes on a lot of um, uh, kind of historical weight you know, depending on your family dynamics, because then you start thinking about all the fathers you knew or all the fathers that were or weren't in your life. So you get a chance to define what kind of father you want to be. And as as you were preparing, Jonathan, all of us, all of the fathers out there who are listening know what that feeling is like the months and weeks leading up to the due date, getting ready. And you mentioned, you know, some of the fathers who are instrumental uh, in your life. Sticking on that theme, who did you want to pattern your your approach to fatherhood um, after? You know, it's funny. I didn't I didn't plan. I didn't model my my fatherhood ideal around anyone per se. you know, something I wrote about in my blog, which is the fact that I um, reconnected with my own father after not seeing him for 25 years. So when I was six years old was the first time and uh, up until the age of about 31, the last time that I had, I saw my dad. So there was a 25 year gap where I had uncles and stepdads and I had other men in my life. I had fraternity brothers. I had the the fathers of my fraternity brothers who have us over for holidays. Um, and I think they model probably manhood in some, to some degree. Right. But this idea of modeling my what kind of father I would be after someone, I, I didn't really model it after anyone. I just kind of made it up as I went. I think the closest ideal um, would be my, my frat brother, Tracy, um, his father is amazing. I, and I, I was always um, just struck by his example because he coached football and coached generations of kids and was really, you know, the family historian. He cooked, he knew how to, to you know, take care of things around the house. I just thought he was such a super, super dad, um, Renaissance dad, probably. And, um, you know, I don't even think he knows how much he influenced me just by his example, but he's he would probably be the closest in terms of I would want to be a dad like that. What was it about him or was there anything in particular that, that you took from him that you now implement into your, your day-to-day role as a dad? You know, he's, he's a, first of all, he's just wise. Yeah. <laughs> he is just a, a wise man. He always has good insights. He always 
he's consistent. You know, his his actions and words match. Um, he, you know, is just present. And I can see the impact that had on my fraternity brother um, in his development into a man. Um, my fr- fraternity brother actually has three kids now. So he's a big, pretty big family. But I yeah. think, um, you know, he has his dad as a really good example. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, man. We're talking to Jonathan Briggs on the Fatherhood Podcast, uh, JB of, of Fatherhood at 40 blog. And that's interesting, man, because I, I became a dad uh, at 36, which is not too far behind behind uh, you. And in, in our generation or in our previous generation, that would be considered old. But it's, it's sort, of, sort of normalized now to see parents around our age range uh, become first time parents. Um, so tell us about your experiences of becoming, becoming a father uh, when you did. Yeah, it's interesting because um, there was some data that came out. Um, I like data. So there was a study that came out right before I started my blog or, around, or right around the, that time that basically said that, you know, fatherhood at 40 is the new normal just yeah. because of generational shifts, um, people delaying having a, starting a family until they start their career. And I think... Um, for me, what I found was that my, a lot of my friends had already had kids in their 20s. They had started, you know, maybe around the mid to late 20s. And so by the time I was 40, their kids were either preteens or yeah. in some cases in high school. I, I felt left behind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and I just felt old, you know, and here I am getting up at the crack of dawn to change diapers or do a feeding or what, what have you. And, you know, I really do think that parenting favors the young because when you're older, you, you don't want to be getting up every three or four hours. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's just hard, hard on you physically and mentally. But, um, you know, at the same time, it was exciting because, you know, I felt like I had so much more to offer, you know, I was yeah. more established in my career and, you know, I, I knew a lot more about life. Um, and so, I think for my wife and I, it was a good thing we started later because of the stability. So with starting later, if you think back, Jonathan, you know, to to maybe some plans you have for your life. I mean, I know everyone, a lot of people have that. I want to be married by 25. I want to have the house and kids and, and a dog by 30. What, what was your life plans? And, you know, was it, you know, your, your plan all along to wait or is that just kind of how life worked for you? It really was how life just kind of worked out. I, I really thought I would probably have been married, you know, by 30, 30 ish. Um, And because I was in journalism and I moved around from from different towns, different papers, and I even lived outside of the country for a little bit, I just sort of, it just took a while to find that woman who, you know, would be a good fit for, for me. It's funny, in waiting so long to, to get married, I had people say, well, didn't you even have any 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 oops baby babies? You know, didn't you have like, you know, a kid out of wedlock or this and that? Yeah. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, right? Everybody has different circumstances, but that wasn't my story. That, and that really yeah. wasn't my plan. And my wife even got the same thing. Like, you, you don't have a baby daddy? You don't have at least, yeah. you know, and it's like, no, that wasn't her plan either. You know, she. I'm sure these are even worse for her because women get that. You know, as much as we get it, as men, the older we get, women get that ten times over. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, especially right, the biological clock yeah. issue, and 
And you do worry if you can even have kids after a while because you, you've waited so long, it might be harder. Mm-hmm. So I think um, my plan, it's funny, what I, what I learned in my 30s was that it doesn't really matter what plans you make. <laughs> um, your life is going to go off any script that you had. It's just not going to follow that path. So I didn't know I was going to meet my wife, Three Harmony. Uh, I was actually her first match. Uh, but not her first date. And we hit it off. It just so happens that shortly after we got together, um, she got accepted into law school. Mm-hmm. And so we definitely decided to wait to have kids until after law school, because law school is pretty pretty tough road. Yeah. Um, so I think st- the waiting was sort of a byproduct of just being so focused on career and being focused on uh, goals. You know, you have goals and dreams you want to do when you don't have as many obligations. Yeah. So, so, so Emory comes along at, you know, 39, you're knocking on 40. Um, now, how old is she now? She's five. She just, she's a kindergartner. Awesome. So, so five years later, lo- looking back a little bit on the JB, what, what are some pros and cons based on your experiences, maybe in comparison to some of your friends who, um, you know, had kids at an earlier age? What are some pros and cons um, to having uh, becoming a dad uh, at the age that you did? Yeah, I would say one of the definite pros is that you just have a lot more to give. So you have a lot more life experience, you, a lot more resources. I mean, you know, I was at that point, probably almost 20 years into my career, because I started in journalism when I was actually in high school, I had traveled the world. I, you know, um, had achieved my my educational goals. And, you know, we had bought a bought a home so together, mm-hmm. so we weren't renting. And just a lot of, um, a lot more of, I was a lot more self-aware of who I was and what I was about, and so was able to help nurture that in my daughter. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's kind of let's take expand on that, that a little bit, um, JB. How did that self awareness and any other uh, things that you feel you were better equipped uh, to provide for her being a father uh, when you did? You know, it's interesting because a lot of what I'm realizing about being a parent is, you know, people say, "Oh, I've turned into my dad or turned into my mom," like you, you subconsciously or consciously mimic what you know, which is your parents. But in my case, because I didn't have my dad around and because, you know, my mother was actually a teenage mom. And so my Mm -hmm. mom grew up more as my friend, not necessarily as my mother. She obviously is my mother, but my mother is only 15 years older than I am. Hmm. And so we kind of grew up more as partners, at least that's looking back on it, that's how I, you know, how I view it. So, you know, for me, what I realized is that when I'm, when I became a father to Emery, it was about helping her find her path, not me imposing or passing on any like generational pathologies or fears about you can and can't do this, or, you know, just being more self-aware about what I'm feeding into her through my actions yeah. and words. And I think that's really a breakthrough, right? Is like, if had I been in my 20s, I don't think I would have had done enough of the, that internal work of just, you know, not to get all, you know, 
Oprah, but like the self-actualization of like, who am I really? And then where do I begin and where does my child start? Because my daughter's not going to be a mini me. She's going to be herself. Yeah. And so, you know, you learn to kind of let go and just nurture the person you have in front of this, this human being that's in your care. Um, and I think even little things like, you know, um, yeah, I grew up in a, uh, environment in Los Angeles, actually South Los Angeles, where there was a lot of gangs and shootings mm-hmm. and a lot of the things that we talk about in Chicago right now. And, you know, that kind of environment makes you, um, keeps you kind of on guard and also, you know, you get stigmatized in some ways for being smart, for being yeah. the person that uses, you know, proper English and, you know, goes to school every day. And um, you're just sort of finding your path in an environment that may not be fully um, nurturing of what you're about. So, you know, the good thing about, you know, having the mother that I did was that she saw that the environment that we lived in wasn't always the best. And we were fortunate enough where we were able to move because we had the, the economic resources to do that. But my mother also had me um, not go to my neighborhood school. She had me hmm. bust out 45 minutes away to a school in the San Fernando Valley, which at the time was predominantly white. And her whole thing is funny. We're having this conversation on Martin Luther King's birthday or the hmm. holiday because her whole thing was, I want you to have the same thing that your white counterparts have. I want you to have the equal education. So yeah. that 45 minute bus ride was nothing compared to the opportunities that would last me a lifetime. And she was right. But, you know, that kind of uh, those are things that shape you. And as when you're older as a parent, I can look back on that and understand what my mother was doing and how I benefited from that. And what I should be doing for my daughter, if that. Yeah, man, that that that's awesome. I'm I'm curious, uh, JB. You know, you mentioned your mom. She had you at a, at a what was what is considered a young age. And on the flip side, you had uh, Emery, your daughter, at what may some may consider as an old age. How did the dynamic work? Or did you have any conversations about that with her? <laughs> no, my mother was just happy that I finally had kids. She's like, I'm a grandmother. <laughs> she didn't care about, yeah. you know. It's funny, I hadn't even noticed that until you pointed that out. I was yeah. always so focused on when my dad had kids. I didn't even think think about the fact that my mom was so young. Yeah. I do think that, you know, regardless of how we come into the to the world, you know, we have to, to reclaim that story and say, yeah. this is what I'm about, or this is where I'm trying, what I'm trying to be about and where I'm going. And I would say that my mother, you know, I think one of the best things that she ever did, because my mother used to actually be a librarian, Mm. was she stressed education. And I know it sounds so cliche, but more specifically what she stressed was reading. My mother was a big, and still is a big promoter of reading because it opens up the world to you. And I think that really, um, is part of the reason I ended up in journalism because you know, I was always talking and always reading and writing. So it just kind of went together. Yeah. Yeah. That's great, man. You mentioned your dad and how ironic was, is it, man? Your, your father became a dad in his forties as well. So you two had that, that similar story. We did. We did. And I think that again, just the universe 
you know, yeah. sort of these these themes of young and old and kind of cycles. Um, I would say, you know, my dad, so I'm the only child that he had. He mm-hmm. actually ended up um, separating from my mom. He actually was, um, they would call it a common law marriage in California now. Mm-hmm. Um, he ended up raising someone else's kids. So those 25 years that I didn't see him, yeah. he was with his common law wife raising her kids from another relationship. So um, when I did reconnect with him, he had a lot of regret about not being there and not being able to to find me and connect with me. What what did that absence, uh, JB, if at all, uh, affect you um, as a father? Has it affect you as a father? You know, it's funny. I know it hasn't, and I think partly because my my family life was always filled with so much love. So right. I, I had stepbrothers and uncles and father figures and other people in my life that I never felt the void of love, any kind of emotional absence. If anything, you know, being a writer, I just had a void in terms of a hole in my story. So, you know, one of the things that I I realized was that I had spent, you know, at that point probably 15 or so years as a journalist writing about other people's lives, but I didn't even know my own story. So I had to commit an act of journalism on myself and go through public records and find my dad. And I wow. that's essentially what I did was I um, used the tools of, you know, the newsroom that I was working in at the time and identified about six or so addresses that matched what little I knew about my dad. I just had his his first name, middle name and his last name. And shortly before Christmas of 2005, I mailed those letters out. And in the letter, it said, if if you can fill in the facts of what I know here, you know, I didn't want to give away too much in case I got some imposter trying to reach out to me, yeah. um, you know, give me a call. And about two, two weeks later, uh, in January 2006, I got a call from him and he said, this is your so-called father. So that's how that's how we reconnected. And over the, the 10 year, 10 plus years since then, um, going on 14 years this year, actually, um, I've actually gotten to know my dad as myself, as a father. So I think, in, again, you know, the universe and God, you know, whoever your higher power may be, you know, it was probably a reason in terms of timing, why it was better for me to reconnect with my dad as a man versus trying to find him when I was younger. Yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you, man, you have a, you have an outstanding story uh, of, of fatherhood to, to share with, with folks, and I'm glad you're sharing with us on the, on the podcast. And part of that story, uh, JB, is that your daughter, Emery, has autism. Um, so take us through the process of learning that she may be on the, on the spe- spectrum and how you, how you found out about that and your feelings once you did. Yeah, that was a, you know, talk about, you know, when life goes off script, right? Because that's really <laughs> what I think parenting really is. So, you know, our daughter was born in 2014 and, you know, everything seemed to be, um, quote unquote, normal. Um, I would say the only thing that was unusual about her birth was that she was born with a sixth finger <laughs> on her hand and 
you know, it turned out to not be a real finger, but just like, you know, some flesh that they, they eventually cut off. Um, and she was born with these really deep blue eyes. And so we just thought that was just really odd. Um, her eyes have since turned hazel. Um, but I think the, um, we didn't really notice anything related to her development until about, about 18 months, um, where we noticed she really wasn't using a lot of words. She wasn't really making any words. And, you know, typically when you read all the baby books, they tell you what your child should be doing at these different milestones. Well, our daughter wasn't meeting those. I think, you know, in hindsight, when we look back, um, we remember we took her to uh, a friend's birth birthday party. It was actually her child's birthday party. And um, our daughter was, was just uncomfortable the whole time. She was screaming and didn't want to be, you know, touched or held. It was just really odd. The whole time we were there, which was over two hours, she was just, it took me probably about two hours to really calm her down. Um, you know, looking back on that, we realized that that probably was an early sign of the mm -hmm. autism was that she didn't, the environment, it was just almost like she was overstimulated. She didn't like to be touched. She, she didn't really um, use a lot of words. She, she would, you know, babble. She might use some, you know, consonant sounds or what have you. She would dance and hum the music, but she she wouldn't say hi and bye when we dropped her off at the daycare like the yeah. other kids. Um, and so we um, took her to her, her pediatrician, and we we didn't really suspect autism. We kind of we just knew something wasn't right. And I think if there's anything that your listeners should take away is if you as a parent, whether mother, father, you have that intuition where you just know that something is not right with your child, yeah. get it, investigate it. So that's what we did. And um, her pediatrician said, you know, I think um, she has sensory processing disorder, which is just basically a neurological condition that affects yeah. your five senses. And so um, we started what's called early intervention services. And that's where they have an occupational therapist and a speech pathologist and a developmental therapist work with your child because every child develops on their own timeline. So maybe she just need a little extra help to help to verbalize, get her communication, social skills together. Um, it wasn't until shortly before her third birthday, so she was going to start, we were getting her um, screened for preschool that we got the behavioral diagnosis of autism. And I think for, for my wife and I, it was actually a relief because we, by that time, you know, we've been doing the early intervention for more than a year. Um, we kind of suspected it probably was autism, but, you know, because it's so much more common in boys than girls, we, you know, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, I, I didn't quite... I just couldn't quite wrap my mind around that it could be autism. So I wouldn't. Why really, is that? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it was a denial. It's just sort of like I just couldn't. Well, one, I just hadn't. Honestly, I had not met any or heard about any girls mm -hmm. who were on the autism spectrum. Yeah. It really is just not that common. Um, and so, but once um, we, we got the diagnosis, I then started to really educate myself more and more about what, what the condition is. And I think one of the things that I, I write about on the blog is this journey of accepting my daughter's 
diagnosis because because we had started with her at 19 months, by the time we got to about three years, it wasn't a surprise, but then it meant that there's a whole new world that I need to understand. And it means that any ideas that I had about what her life was going to be, just in terms of, you know, as a parent, you always think about this idea of you want your child to be healthy and whether or not you call healthy normal, you still have this comparison with like, this is what a typical child should be. So you got to throw that out the window (laughs) and then start with, this is my child, you know, find out what her talents are, what her strengths are, what her interests are. You really have to see your child as a unique individual being and not, oh, my child is going to be like everybody else. And the reality- So how, how excuse me, not to interrupt you, but how, how difficult was that for you, JB? You know, you have these, these dreams. I'm sure you and your wife had these big plans for what you wanted your daughter to do, some of the things you wanted her to experience. Uh, I know I do uh, with, with our Emory. You know, so you had to, this is a new normal for you. How difficult was that to just put all that to the side and essentially we don't have to start from scratch here? Yeah, it's interesting because because we had been living with seeing her development for that period of time, like just seeing the deficits, right? Like at that time, from that frame of mind, I would say deficit, you know, Mm -hmm. it was almost like that was normal, right? So it's almost like we eased into it. I think it would have been more jarring had it been something like an overnight thing, right? Like say your child had a epileptic, you know, seizure or there was a stroke or an accident. It's like, whoa, it's a jarring transition versus we'd seen her development and we celebrated all of her milestones and achievements. And she was, she was actually, you know, verbalizing and making progress. And so it was almost like we were comparing her to herself. And what the diagnosis did for me was it, it confirmed that this journey is going to be different, that my fatherhood journey is going to be different. And I really need to fully understand everything that's going on with my daughter, you know, in the mm-hmm. sense, in a way that maybe other parents don't have to think about as much. And so, and these are things like, you know, um, if she's ever in trouble, can she, you know, you know, uh, say her phone number or, you know, her address or know how to verbalize for help. I had a lot of safety concerns with my daughter. Um, And especially when you are African-American and you have a child and then now that child has special needs. I just have, you know, so many different scenarios run through your head about, you know, your child, when they see your child, they're going to see this person of color first. They don't know that your child has a neurological, you know, condition. They don't see the autism right away. They see little black girl. And so, you know, I think it's more of your mind kind of can um, imagine all these different scenarios and you want your child to be prepared to, to deal with it. You want to make sure they, they're equipped because you're not always going to be, be around. You're not always going to be there. So, and those are what I call my papa bear <laughs> kind of feelings where like, I think as parents, like your brain changes and you do think a whole, you think about a whole lot of crazy stuff 
<laughs> when it yeah. comes to your child, right? That might seem extreme, but that's because you want the best for them. You want the world for them. You want to make sure that you are raising them um, so that they can stand on their own. What, if any, uh, JB, conversations that maybe you and your wife had as you both uh, tried to navigate this new normal? How did how did that work for, for you both? You know, it's interesting because, and I think this goes back to the fact that my wife and I are older parents. We, we talk about real stuff all the time. So we didn't have sort of like the conversation because we had been having the conversation as soon as we got her initial diagnosis and she started early intervention. It was like, whoa, okay, let's read everything. I started, you know, going to the Autism Speaks website, reading stuff. You know, I got books. I um, actually, because of the the blog post that I wrote, there was a woman um, in Detroit who has a foundation called The Color of Autism. She reached out to me and she was putting together a national network of community organizations focused on um, African-American families affected by autism. So I learned a lot from working with her and and this group of mostly women who, you know, are mothers caring for mainly boys, their sons who are on the spectrum. And here I was, the only dad of the group (laughs) with a daughter. (laughs) And so I learned a lot from their, their lived experience. You know, I think the thing with autism and any really really any condition is if you can talk to the people who are further on the path than you are, then it saves you a lot of frustration and anger and heartache and all of that. You, you have a more um, calm lens on what it is. But my wife and I, we didn't have have a um, like a deep conversation per se. I think what happened with us is we, I majored in, I have a master's degree in public health. So I had this very academic, you know, brainy approach to it. And she has her motherly, but also lawyerly mind to it. And really what came about was there would be these moments where we had to make decisions about our daughter's care. And that's where we needed to talk about what we wanted for her. We had to get on the same page about, is she going to have therapy at home? Or is it going to be at a clinic? Is it going to be at the daycare? Is it you know, um, just what kind of routines at home, you start to think about how to parent, how you're, how you're going to parent differently um, mm. to make sure that your child has everything they need. The biggest frustration, I would say, just came from navigating health insurance, because once we decided what kind of therapy we wanted for our daughter, you ha- we had to go through all these hoops to get it approved by insurance, because there's only one therapy that they approve. And it's one that's been shown to be most effective, but that means that there's some out-of-pocket expenses. It also means that depending on the healthcare provider you have, it may or may not be covered as a default benefit. And it means you have to then choose the right clinic or organization to work with your child. And so we entered a whole other world of kind of navigating the healthcare system to to advocate for our child. I think this is the thing that <laughs> I did not know was that, you know, you're always going to fight for your child, but when you have a, a special needs child, you are full-time advocate. Like there's no relaxing, <laughs> you know, like you have to suddenly learn 
what a individualized education program is. You have to think about how they're going to work at, you know, what the classroom, their classroom life is going to be like. You just have so many things that you have to process and think about for them. That's just the, what I call the administrative stuff. Yeah. Then you got to deal with your own inner emotional world of, you know, what is, what's going on. And I think that's the benefit to being older is that you've already experienced so many things, including setback um, and how to overcome challenges. You just have, a, I think, more of a um, maybe a calm demeanor for how to weather the ups and downs. Wow. Wow. That's awesome, man. I'm just taking this all in. And you brought up an interesting point. Um, one thing I really try to, to touch on on this podcast, JB, is, is the mental health, especially for, for, for men of color. So hearing you say all that, how did you take and how do you continue to take care of your mental space as you deal with, you know, all the challenges that come with being a special needs dad, um, dealing with everything that comes with, with that, with insurance, everything you just mentioned, how do you take care of yourself mentally through all that? Yeah, it's so funny you mentioned that because <laughs> my wife and I have our own self-care rituals. So she's a big bath person. Like she will run a bath and have her Epsom salt and special lavender oils and all of that. And that is really her way to recharge. And that's her oasis. For me, it is it's the gym. I, I have to <laughs> I have yeah, to get to where where I can throw some weights around. I can yeah. run. I I have to do something physical. And also, um, I have to have some quiet space. So there's got to be, you know, 15 minutes at least a day where I'm just calm. Like I'm walking outside, I'm doing something where my mind is just um, doing something enjoyable or not, or not thinking about anything at all. So it's funny, part of the reason why I started the blog, Fatherhood at 40, um, was just as a creative outlet. I like to write and I, you know, I like to um, sort of, you know, build websites and all of that. But what I didn't know um, until after the, the, the diagnosis came was it really became a form of therapy. So when I'm writing these essays, like I get a lot of, I have more women readers than anything on my blog. I think probably most blog, dad blogs probably have a lot of women. Um, but what I, what I heard from the women that read my blog is that it's the the heartfelt, emotional kind of essay. It's almost like they like hearing from dads more of that emotional side of being a dad, and it's almost maybe more vulnerable. Even though I don't I don't think of it that way. I'm just being honest in my writing. But for me, it's like I'm just trying to process and make sense of whatever that thing is. Um, one thing I was adamant about was that I didn't want the blog to focus only on autism. You know, it's it's one strand of my parenthood journey. And, you know, a lot of my readers have told me that they do like the fact that I am not just sort of like a one trick pony, <laughs> like one topic only. Um, because, you know, that's true to how our life is. You know, autism, it's just an, another part of our, our life now. And, um it's not something that's almost like this outlier. It's just kind of integrated in with everything we do. Yeah. So, yeah. and I think that's the important thing is so many families may feel isolated where they don't have a support network. So in terms of trying to 
with the, you know, going back to your question about the mental health aspect, it's important to find people, spaces, places that you can um, get that support, have an outlet, um, talk to other parents. You just gotta, you know, people that will, will um, you know, babysit your kids or be with your kids so you can go out and have date night. Like all of those things are really, really important. Well, great, man. I think that that's JB. That's a really good place to, to wrap this conversation up. As I say with with all my guests, I could go on and on and on, but I think we can we can put a pin uh, right there. I appreciate you joining me and having this great conversation. Before I you know let you go, um, tell the people how they can reach you, your your website, your your social media handles, just so people kind of get in touch with you and read some of your your perspectives on fatherhood. Oh, absolutely, Jamar. So I'm at um, fatherhood at 40.net. So fatherhood, A-T, and then 40 spelled out.net. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at father, fatherhood40. So you can find me there. Um, I'm on Facebook as well. So, you know, I um, welcome, you know, getting ideas from people and connecting with people and sharing information. So feel free to reach out and, you know, connecting and, you know, let's be on this journey together. Absolutely. No, Jonathan Briggs, I uh, appreciate you joining me today on the Fatherhood Podcast. Thanks for having me. Bye. I want to thank my man Jonathan Briggs for joining me today on the Fatherhood Podcast. And as always, thank you for listening. You can check the podcast on all major streaming platforms, including Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and others. Be sure to follow me on social media at the Fatherhood Podcast on Instagram. And check out the Fatherhood Podcast page on Facebook and, and like it. As always, if you like what you hear, leave a rating and review on iTunes. Until next time, I'm Jamar Hudson, and this is the Fatherhood Podcast.